Hello, my name's Patrick, and I'm a Scream Queen. I'm a Scream Queen, and so are you! Beautiful screamers, and welcome to another episode of Scream Queens, the podcast where horror gets bent. This is a Halloween bone us episode. That's right, it's our Christmas, it's our holiday season, so I'm putting out extra episodes all month long. So far at random, going to be a little more concentrated as the big day approaches, but anybody can do a bonus episode, right? But you know, so this it's a gay thing. Bone us, bone. Uh, see what I'm doing there? Bone, like sex, like bone, like bone, like penis, or whatever, whatever you're into. It's bone. Everybody just start boning everybody, but only with consent. Bone me, bone you, bone us. Bone everybody. Muscle tough. I don't know what's happening. So, for this very special episode, we're going to be taking a look at Messiah of Evil from 1973. Or should I say Messiah of Evil? Because this this is some bad stuff going on here. And I don't mean the movie itself. I mean what's going on in the movie. So, I went into this 100% cold. Knew nothing about it. I'd seen people mentioning it on some of the Grindhouse chat pages on Facebook. Just saying, oh, anybody remember this one? That's usually the end of the discussion. People are like, yeah, I saw that. It was awesome. Oh, that was stupid. But, you know, I, I love these discussions. I'm like, this isn't a discussion. And I don't remember because I haven't seen it. And it came up enough times that I said, all right, I'll give it a chance. I can't find anything to watch on Amazon Prime. And it's Halloween. I want to do some stuff that I don't normally do. I don't mean sexually. I mean like with movies. Well, I could do stuff, stuff sexually that I don't normally do. But currently I haven't been doing anything. So whatever. What are we talking about? Are we talking about me? Getting it on or are we talking about the movie? Me getting it on with this movie. I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, picture it. Something horrible is happening in the sleepy seaside town of Point Dune. Something is infecting the people that live there. No, not a disease. Not a disease of the body, but more a disease of the soul. Because the blood moon is beginning to rise. And the redder the moon gets, the stranger its citizens get. The more dangerous, the more monstrous. And it's spreading. And you can't escape it. No one's immune from it. Because in this little sleepy seaside town of Point Dune, evil is coming. Evil is waiting to rise out of the sea. Evil's waiting to come home. Now, there's no trailer for this, because I, I, I did find a trailer, but all it was was the opening scene, which in and of itself was kind of fabulous, because let me just tell you this right now. This movie is weird. It's super eerie. It's super creepy from frame one. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, not in a linear fashion. It's all very nightmarish and dreamlike and a bit surreal. 
and Lovecraftian. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this movie is more Lovecraftian than a lot of the Lovecraft-based movies that I've seen. But we'll come back to that in a little while. Let's talk about the movie first. Now, like I said, the movie opens... <laughs> well, right off the bat, what's weird about this scene in the opening? Well, it's the music. There's a song with singing, and it doesn't fit anything that happens anywhere in the movie, and that makes it kind of fabulous. And I'm going to start playing it right now. I gave my message to the wind. I told my story to the sea. No one else is listening to me. The hidden truth clear in my mind. Soon all alone I will not find. Somehow, somewhere, Okay, so what are we seeing? We're seeing a man in a fabulous brown corduroy jacket running through the streets of Point Dune alone at night. He's sweaty. He's clearly been through some shit. He collapses. And as he collapses, he sees a little girl watching him through a gate and a fence. And he runs to the gate and the fence. And the little girl lets him in. He once again collapses in a heap, a sweaty, bloody heap, on the ground. The little girl approaches him. He looks at her. She looks at him. She kneels beside his brown corduroy-clad body. It's the 70s. We all had one. Deal with it. Not the body, but the jacket. Okay, well, maybe some of us had a corduroy body, but we're, we're, I'm, off, I'm off the point already. Okay, so, okay, shh, shh, this thinging and this weird music. She smooths his furrowed, sweaty brow. He smiles. She slashes his throat. Title card! And now the movie starts for real, and the movie starts with our main gal, Marianna Hill. Arletti which is a weird name. Nothing's normal in this movie. Nothing. She's in an asylum. She's narrating this, again, giving this movie this Lovecraftian theme. Much of the movie is just her off-screen narration. Not all of it, but a lot of it. They say that nightmares are dreams perverted. I've told them here it wasn't a nightmare, but they don't believe me. They nod and make little notes in my file. And they watch me now, waiting for me to scar my breasts, to eat insects maybe, or to lift my dress like some crazy old woman and urinate on the floor. But there's so little time left. You've got to listen. Not far from here, there's a small town on the coast. They used to call it New Bethlehem, but they changed the name to Point Dune after 
the moon turned blood red. One dune doesn't look any different than a thousand other neon stucco towns. And what happened there? What they did to me? What they're doing now? point do you ever feel safe because no one she meets acts normally every place she goes is physically strange to look at and it's a wonderful mood setting and and right off the bat we learn that she's going to point dune to find her missing father he's been living there for some time he is an artist, and he paints, and he sculpts, does all these wonderful things, but he stopped communicating with her all of a sudden. No more letters, no more phone calls, and she's worried. And on the way, she stops at a gas station. And as she pulls into the gas station, the attendant is shooting a gun into the fields, looking terrified. There's howling sounds all around. And he comes over and is trying to act all normal, trying to pump her gas, but he's clearly distracted. He forgets to charge her for it and stuff because he's more concerned about what the hell is going on in those fields. What's going on in those fields? We don't know. Not yet. She asks, what's going on? What were you shooting at? And he says, uh, rabid dogs. I mean, wolves. And she says, there's no wolves in California. He's like, get out. Do I just go to Point Dune with your inch-thick eyeliner on. She's got some serious eyeliner on. I know it was the 70s, and I mean, man, it makes like smoky... Uh, wow, it looks like it's applied with one of those like gigantic magic markers. Right on Orletti. Own it. You're fabulous. Go. But before she can leave, we meet one of the residents of Point Dune, one of the most terrifying people in the film, a recurring character. He is... This enormous, nine-foot-tall, cross-eyed, black albino man who pulls into the gas station with a truck, a pickup truck, that's filled with dead bodies. And that, uh, it, okay, uh-huh, okay. So already, I know what's going on. There seems to be monsters in the field. There's a guy, I mean, what, what's happening over here with this crazy-looking dude? With dead bodies and the gas station attendant just acting like this is totally normal. And she's just like, I'm gonna go. Which she does. Now one of the great mood things about this, much of this takes place in her father's house. And like I said, her father is an artist. So every room in the house is filled with his art. And his art is extremely unsettling. He has painted scenes and people from around Point Dune, but 
all of the paintings are distorted and they are strange and they are somehow quite frightening and in a certain way you're like well it's kind of normal all right i get what he's doing but as a result every scene that takes place in the house you're always being watched by these dead blank-faced people of point dune yeah in art form but they're there they're there they're always around and there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. I mean, the bed itself, he's got this bed. It's literally a mattress that's hanging from the ceiling by a chain. I'm like, whoa, this is like some serious sex bed action going on. Our lady's dead. Rock yourself out. When the bed is swinging, don't come jingling whatever that means. She's going around Point Dune. She figures the best place to start would be the local art gallery which is run by a blind woman. Okay, a blind woman is running an art gallery. Again, strange, weird. They're like, uh, we don't know anything about your father. I mean, we know who he is, but we don't have anything of his, but some people were looking for him today. They're at the hotel. Why don't you go find them? So while I don't want to spend a lot of time going over the plot, because it is hard to talk about since so much of it is visual and so much of it is surreal, I do want to talk about these three people that she meets at the hotel. Well, technically four, but three in particular. She goes there, and you meet the other three main characters of the film. It's this man, played by Michael Green, and his two beautiful female companions. And what is unsettling about them is that they, their intentions are not clear at any given point. Their relationship is strange. Apparently they travel around the country and bone each other. That these two women are his harem of some sort and I don't really understand what he wants with the main character except to bone her too. So when these four people, when uh, I mean uh, the, these, the man, the two women and Arlotti are together, Arletti are together, I'm always very worried for poor Arletti that she's going to get manhandled or sexually ravaged because with these three are around it always seems like an orgy is about to burst out because the women being beautiful women they always seem to have a titty about to lob out doesn't ever know but that's not the point it just seems like nudity is going to happen sex is going to happen sexual threat is always present so these three are interviewing the town drunk, when Arletti gets there, the town drunk played by Alicia Cook Jr. from House on Haunted Hill, the original one, and apparently Alicia made his career out of playing incredibly drunk characters, and here is no different. And while he wasn't alive for the last time the blood moon happened, his father was, so he knows the story, and that's what these three are interested in. So I am not sure for the longest time whether or not these three folks are evil or good. And even when I decided that maybe they're not evil evil in the way the town is becoming evil, I think they still might be very bad. And that questioning goes on for a very long time, causing this constant sense of dread outside of the supernatural dread that's happening in the film because after this encounter our lady goes home and she goes to sleep she has her nightmares like she has all the time when she wakes up in the morning these three are in the house and the man says to her oh well we were thrown out of the uh, hotel 
after you left and all the other hotels mysteriously wouldn't serve us so we decided we're going to stay here and she says I don't want you here he says of course you do and they just stay and she lets it happen I'm like Am I, what, what is this it feels oddly like rape house rape get out of my house weird people get out of my house weird orgy people I don't like this I have a bed that's basically a sex sling I'm uncomfortable with you guys being here now, I also want to take a moment to talk about this man, Michael Green. I have nothing against this man, but when he popped up on screen for the first time, the first thing that went through my head was, <gasps> flat-faced chicken. Now, you're probably wondering, what does that mean, Patrick? Well, I'll tell you, when I was a kid, picture it. I'm a child, possibly seven or eight. I tune into the Donnie and Marie show every week because I was a gay seven or eight-year-old child, and it was the 70s. It's what you did. Whenever... Their brother, Jimmy Osmond, would show up on the show. My mother would start clucking her tongue and shaking her head and going, Oh, I can't stand to look at him. He's just such a flat-faced chicken. Oh, look, there he is again, the flat-faced chicken. I don't want him on my TV screen. Oh, horrible, horrible flat-faced chicken person. Disgusting to look at. I never really understood what that phrase means because Jimmy Olsen had a very... Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Olsen, Jimmy Osmond had a very round face. It wasn't flat at all, but my mother was very insistent. And to this day, if you bring up the flat face chicken, she knows exactly who we're talking about. I hated that. She ruined that good show with the Donnie and the Marie with his flat face chicken face. But every time this guy popped up, I was like, ew, flat face chicken. And he wants to have sex with you because he is very overt with his intentions that, oh, uh, hey, Arletti, I will be boning you soon, so you might as well get used to the idea. So you can either say yes now, or it's just going to happen, because eventually. And it's gross, and it's off-putting, and I don't like it, and I'm just picturing that flat-faced chicken above me pumping away, pumping away, and no, flat-faced chicken, go away. Go away. So this is the level of horror to the movie that you won't experience personally. <laughs> But to be watching a man make sexual advances on a woman and to be hearing my mother in my head talking about flat-faced chicken people, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. This movie has wonderful set pieces in it, wonderful eerie set pieces that I'm not going to go into too much detail. There's one in a supermarket that's fluorescent lit horror with no dialogue or sound except the supermarket's music. And horrible things happen there. And another scene in a pretty much empty movie theater, which is a textbook example of how to build suspense. This character goes to the movie theater to get away from the horrors that are going on. And oddly enough, the movie that's playing is a Western starring Sammy Davis Jr. as a gunslinger. What? What? Apparently it's a real movie. What? What? I don't know. Already weird. This is continuing to be weird. But she goes in there, it's relatively empty. There's maybe one or two people towards the front watching the movie. She sits down to see the film and she's watching and she's watching and as she's watching it, the townspeople, the infected townspeople are starting to slowly drift in. One at a time, you never see them walk in. They just start appearing behind her more and more and more and more in a scene that echoes the playground scene in The Birds. It is incredibly effective. It is incredibly disturbing. So this movie doesn't have a lot of gore. There's a lot of violence, but not a lot of gore per se, except for people bleeding out their eyes, because that is one of the main symptoms of this strange spiritual disease affecting the people of Point Dune. 
but overall it's effective like i said it's nightmarish i never felt comfortable watching it the lighting is lurid it's got that uh many scenes have that dario argento argento dario argento oversaturation of bright colors which just makes everything garish and lurid and beautiful at the same time the electronic score often sounds like a discordant church organ and all of it put together makes for an incredibly unsettling uneasy experience the problem of course is the very end of the film the resolution of the film is not great because according to Marianna Hill in an interview she said they just ran out of money so they had to wrap everything up so the end itself kind of shits the bed but doesn't every Lovecraft story doesn't every Lovecraft story that's not a Lovecraft story do the same kind of thing and I saw it and I went crazy and I can't describe it because ah but overall this is a wonderful way to usher in the Hollywood uh, the Halloween season because something that this movie does expertly is create this drowning sensation of rising, crawling, creeping, unstoppable dread. And instills a fear of something that, while you may not completely understand strikes at something deeper, a deeper chord, something instinctual, something primal. And I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> There's something about these films from the 70s in particular. Maybe it's because these are the horror movies that I was first ingratiated to at a very early age. There's something about the look and the feel and the tone of them that gets me in the pit of my stomach the way even the most modern, the best of the modern horror movies don't. It's not visceral. It's kind of like a childhood fear that all these things put in me just by the look and feel of it. I said put in me, and I put it, and now I'm thinking of things in me, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I am terrible. I am a terrible person. So Messiah of Evil from 1973 is available to watch on YouTube and a better print of it is available on Amazon Prime. So go check that out. If you happen to pick up the Blu-ray of this though, it is missing that fabulous, perverse, completely incongruous pop song at the beginning. And I learned that from listener and former guest host Ben Schur from the Flowers in the Attic episode who was crying about it on the Facebook earlier. And while I love Blu-ray, I think I kind of love this tacky lounge song even more. It's like from the worst cabaret show that's also the best cabaret show ever. Ooh, maybe I'll do that in my cabaret show someday. Hold on to love. Hold on to love. Okay, what are we talking about? Okay, we're wrapping this up. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Back back to the point, Patrick. Stop singing. Never. Never. So, that's going to wrap up this mini-sode. This bone-us episode. So, until the next time, something fabulously frightening or hideously horrible crosses my path... And remember, I'm still looking for your stories of Halloween haunts. I've gotten none so far. 
No one has called in a story of a Halloween attraction or anything that you've done this Halloween or any other Halloween that would make for an interesting tale to retell. And I'm dying to hear. I'm dying to hear. So pick up your phone, stick out your finger, rub it on the buttons with the numbers 917-720-2047. Or you can write the story to me at crew at screamqueens.com. You can send it to me on Facebook. If you look for the Scream Queens Horror Podcast page, you can tweet it to me at Scream Queens. That's Queens with a Z. And... By all means, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tell them that it's Scream Queens with a Z and not the imposter show that's going on right now. And so until next time, my beautiful, beautiful screamers, continue to make the world a creepier place. And remember that Scream Queens rule, especially so in this season of Halloween. Fight or flight, survive the night, make it to the final reel, baby. Some of the music for tonight's program has been provided by Mavio's Music Service. Check them out at music.mavio.com, bitches. Beware of the